are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Pastor David asked me just an hour ago to fill in for him. He was um, about about 90 minutes ago. He was uh, going to uh, be home just in time. Uh, be picked up at the airport by his wife and get home very quickly to to do this live stream. And uh, he was unable to make it. And uh, he missed his flight. Actually, he didn't miss his flight. They delayed his flight. And so uh, here I am, Pastor Bill Walton. I pastor a church called Cornerstone Fellowship in Napa, California. And uh, glad to be here with you. So there's kind of an old joke, if I may start off with a little bit of humor. Uh, there was an important event and a pastor was needed to speak. And so the host pastor put out a phone call and uh, the answer was no, uh, the speaker couldn't make it. The pastor was desperate. He put out another phone call. And once again, uh, the answer was no, the, the speaker was unavailable. And uh, finally, he put out another phone call. And so David called me the third time and I figured, well, I might as well do it. So it's kind of an old joke that, that pastors use at conferences, that kind of thing. I saw that somebody logged in, so we've got some people watching. Appreciate it. I'm sure you're a bit disappointed that I am not David Gusick. And um, I quote him so much at our church this last Sunday, uh, I called him our assistant pastor. So <laughs> our church really loves Pastor David and his enduring word commentary. And so uh, there's David jumping in at the last minute, or, or actually um, writing to you guys that I'm filling in. So here we go. I hope you're all well. I'll be taking questions. Um, I need to set that up with uh, the, the man that, that is submitting those. So uh, Nathan, if you could email me those questions, pastorbillwalden at gmail.com, that would be fantastic. So I'll turn that on. Uh, we're kind of flying the plane while we're building it. So uh, excuse a little bit of lack of uh, preparation here. So glad to be with you. I know that Pastor David always starts off with kind of a lead question or a lead comment. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about fellowship or leadership uh, within the body of Christ. Leadership is so vitally important. Um, God, God uh, appoints people to lead his people, pastors, elders, deacons, people in different kinds of ministries, evangelists. And so leadership is so vitally important. Um, it has been said, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that um, as the leader goes or as the pastor goes, so goes the church. Um, I've taught at some Bible colleges uh, throughout uh, Europe and uh, South America. And uh, when I've taught the pastoral epistles, uh, you know, Pastor David and I are in the camp that we believe that uh, pastoral leadership is is called uh, upon for men. For men. Um, however, people ask me, do you allow women to sit in those classes? And I always say yes, because as whereas we might be training young men to become pastors, we also want the sisters in the church to be able to recognize what godly leadership is. Um, all of us, whether we feel called to lead any number of people or not, should be able to recognize what godly leadership is uh, so that we can um, support a godly leader, or we can be wary of an ungodly leader. Uh, it is my opinion, and I think there's a lot of pastors and leaders that would agree with me, unfortunately, uh, that this is the case, that there's a lot of ungodly leadership uh, in Christendom today. 
uh, at our church in Napa, California, Cornerstone Fellowship. I'm, I'm teaching right now currently through the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel follows the book of Judges, and the book of Judges, one of the repeated themes is that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. God would send them judges, and the people would just ignore the judges. Finally, the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel asked God for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations, and it seems as though they were envious of having a personality to follow. I don't believe that King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, was, a, was God's first choice. Uh, I believe that King David was God's first choice, but God relented and he allowed Saul to be anointed and, and uh, ordained, if you will, as the king of Israel. He started off well for a very short time, uh, but after that, he became a terrible king and a terrible leader. Wanted to kind of give you a, a snapshot of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, and I know that you guys uh, have some questions in that, but um, as Pastor David does, kind of starts off with something that's in his heart or something uh, that somebody has asked. Um, 1 Samuel 14, if you want to follow along a little bit, this isn't going to be a Bible study proper, more of a short devotional, uh, but there's some, some wonderful things that we can glean. Jonathan, in the previous chapter, had attacked the Philistines. The Philistines had the Israelis, the Hebrew people, under their thumb. They were controlling them. They were dominating them. Jonathan, the son of Saul, was a man of faith, and he had attacked them and had moderate success. But in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, the Philistines counterattacked. Saul showed his true colors at that point. He panicked. Though he was king, he did not act kingly. Typically, God's people, the, the Hebrew people, would wait until a priest would come and they would offer, make an offering to the Lord before a battle to, to recognize the lordship of, of Jehovah over their lives. Samuel at the time was the prophet and, and the one who would offer those sacrifices and he told Saul to wait. However, Saul panicked and he offered the sacrifice himself, which was totally unlawful for a, uh, for a king to do. It was the job of a priest. At that point, Samuel, the prophet, told Saul, your, your kingdom has been taken from you. It would, ha it, wouldn't be, it would be 20 years more. But Saul disqualified himself at that moment. And Samuel said, God is looking for a man after his own heart. Saul panicked. The people panicked. They were afraid. Saul, as the leader, should have been a man of faith. Instead, he was a man of fear. And so oftentimes people in leadership, they know they should be leading, but if they're living in fear instead of faith, they can't respond in faith. They can't respond according to the Spirit of God, and they will just do something. Leaders know they should do something, especially when people are panicking and uh, starting to put pressure on them. And so Saul responded in that way. In chapter 14, we see another contrast here. We see... Uh, Jonathan, I'm going to be glancing up at my Bible here on my screen here. So uh, I always like to make eye contact with people, but hey, we're doing a couple of things here. Um, Jonathan realizes that something needs to be done. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. It seems as though Jonathan was persuaded that his father would either would tell him no or would try to somehow, somehow Saul would mess it up. Saul wasn't a man of faith. Saul was a man of fear. 
He was leader, he was king, but he was carnal. So Jonathan took it upon himself to investigate the will of God. And he told his armor bearer, and there was a place where, where it was a narrow place, kind of on a cliff wall is how I envision it, where if you were attacking a large army, all with a front attack, you have to defend yourself against many soldiers. With Jonathan, he said, there's a narrow place. We'll go there because only a few soldiers, if they came to face them, it would be easier to, to resist them. Jonathan told his armor bearer, let's go reveal ourselves to the Philistines. If they say, wait down there, we're going to come and we're going to show you a thing or two, then we'll know that God has not give them, given them over into our hand. Conversely, Jonathan said, if the Philistines say, come up here and we'll show you a thing or two, we'll know that God has delivered them to us. In Christendom, we, we call this looking for an open door or a closed door. Jonathan is a man of faith. And he says here that, uh, let me try to find the verse. If I can't, uh, the verse basically says this, that God can do anything and nothing can restrain him. God is not restrained by many and he's not helped by many. He's not restrained or helped with many or with few. Kind of the first point to notice about Jonathan as a godly and a spiritual leader, he knew the character of God. He had this mindset of Romans 8.31, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Christian, it's so important to know as God is leading you that you have that mindset. If God is for me, who can be against me? Now, people are against us. Satan's against us. Perhaps we can insert one word into that phrase. If God is for me, who can effectively be against me? And it is with this mindset and with this faith that Jonathan said, let's go see what God's will is. Because if God is for us, a whole Philistine army can't defeat us. It's wonderful to know that Jonathan had, had that perspective of God. Christian, do you have that perspective of God? Does your pastor have that perspective of God? I think there was an old cartoon or a story about someone named Chicken Little, and Chicken Little got hit in the head with an acorn, he, he, and he said, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And unfortunately, some Christians within the body of Christ, and, and I, I can be this way and you can be this way, the slightest thing, and we say the sky is falling. Saul seemed to be that kind of leader. He was fearful. Jonathan didn't want to tell his dad. He says, let's go see what the will of God is. And so they go over there. And they realize the Philistines call and they say to them, hey, you come up here, we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, God's given them to us. And so God caused confusion among the Philistine army. Uh, he even sent an earthquake so that they begin to fight each other. Now, it's very, very interesting. It says this about Saul. When Jonathan was doing all this, Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were 600 men. Those were the soldiers that were left. He had 3,000 previously, but many had deserted because Saul wasn't a good leader. And there were some guys there, including uh, the priest of the Lord who was wearing the ephod. They could determine the will of God. So Jonathan's up the hill fighting the Philistines. God's shaking the earth. He's causing the Philistines to turn upon one another. And Saul's down by the pomegranate tree. And as the story goes, this is a real brief uh, kind of review. 
Saul hears the noise and he turns to his guys and says, Gil, let's give a roll call. Who's missing from us? We, you know, I didn't authorize anybody to go over there. I need to know who's doing this. Who's taken it upon themselves to go attack the Philistines? And I'm thinking, and, and commentators think, Saul, this is a perfect moment to join the fight. <laughs> Instead of checking who left without your permission, there's obviously something wonderful going on up the hill. Saul, if you're the leader, get up the hill and take the troops. Saul even went so far to ask the priests to reach within the ephod of the priest, and they had what was called the Urim and the Thummim, and they could get a yes or a no answer from the Lord, and God answered in very basic ways in those days. They weren't filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, such as modern-day Christians are. And at some point, they discover that it's Jonathan that's over there, and uh, Saul tells the, the priest even, take your hand from the breastplate, you know, we figured out that it's Jonathan. And so, so far, what do we have? I'm glad you asked. So far, what do we have? We have Jonathan being a very godly leader, a man of faith. And notice too, guys, as he's discovering the will of God, he's not presumptuous. He said, it may be that God is for us. It might be that God is against us. Uh, in, in this regard, in this moment, I, we're not sure what God wants us to do. We know he's for us and not against us, but we don't know if he's leading. I don't know if he's leading. So the, the, one of the characteristics of a godly leader is that he knows that God is for him, but he's not presumptuous and he doesn't try to manipulate the outcome. This is where my pastoral heart kicks in. Brothers and sisters, if you have a manipulative pastor, please be careful about that. Sometimes pastors, indeed pastors that some pastors probably aren't called, unfortunately. They're good people. They have good intentions, but they're not called. They don't have an anointing for pastoral leadership. But they want to do something. But they want to do something to help people. But then if they're not anointed for that position, they can't really lead by the Spirit. Sometimes pastors try to manipulate the outcome of things. Saul, Saul was that kind of guy. Jonathan was not that kind of guy. Jonathan said, if this happens, then we'll know that the Lord's not leading. If this other thing happens, we know that God's leading. But no matter what, nothing can restrain the Lord. So spiritual leadership, this is what we're talking about today. Spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership knows that God is for us and not against us. And then it takes ventures of faith, as Pastor Chuck Smith would tell us, many of us who are Calvary Chapel pastors, we know that phrase, to take a step of faith, to take a venture of faith. Let's see what God wants to do. And Jonathan got his answer. Saul, on the other hand, who was a carnal leader, missed a wonderful opportunity to, to have led, to have initiated this thing. He could have had the faith to make the same decision that Jonathan did, but he didn't have the faith. As the story goes, <clears throat> Some of the Israelis had been, the Hebrew people had been captured by the Philistines. At Jonathan's advance in, in his military effort, they are encouraged and they join the fight. The people on the other side uh, of the battle, Saul and his remaining soldiers, they see what's going on, they join the fight, and it begins to become a wonderful victory for the people of God. After every great victory, there would be kind of a, sadly, a finishing up. You might take prisoners of war, you know, might take spoil. And at this point, Saul, after the victory has been basically won, he makes an announcement. 
He says, nobody's going to eat anything until I have taken vengeance on all of my enemies. Now, suddenly, Saul is owning the battle. Suddenly, he's acting like he's been in charge the whole time. Guys, Jonathan was humble and spiritual. Saul is carnal and proud. And now he's making a mandate for his people that is a foolish mandate. After the battle, and as they're still pursuing the, the, the few Philistines that, that escaped, um, he's depriving his people of food. Jonathan doesn't hear about that. You know, Jonathan's there in the woods with everybody else. He sees a little bunny, a bit of honey. He puts the honey to his mouth. Uh, Saul finds out about it, and he's willing to kill his own son to lift up a, a foolish mandate that he uh, made himself. And the people basically rescue uh, Jonathan from Saul. Let me bring this to a close and summarize, and I know we have some questions here. Jonathan knew that God was for him and not against him. Jonathan didn't even want to defer to his father on this one, sadly, because he knew his dad. And he knew that his dad was carnal and not spiritual. And so he kind of takes it upon himself to try to liberate the people of God. He has faith, but he's not presumptuous. Dear brothers and sisters, I pray that you can all find Christian leaders and also be that kind of Christian leader that has faith, but is not presumptuous. The other side of the coin is that Saul was totally out of touch. When the victory was beginning to be won, He's worried about who's missing and who gave somebody permission to go win a great victory for God's people. When the victory is won, it seems as though he tries to take credit for himself. And he says, we're not going to eat until we take vengeance on my enemies. And then he makes that foolish oath about killing anybody who wants to have food. So read 1 Samuel 13 and 14, particularly if you are uh, in a place of leading and or perhaps changing churches, perhaps investigating where God would lead you and your family uh, to, go to, to go to church. You want a leader like Jonathan. After Saul is replaced, we're going to see King David, a man after God's own heart, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but a man who had faith and a man who always repented. So it's a very, very interesting study, Jonathan and, and, and Saul. Uh, Saul goes on to be a terrible leader. Uh, and it's just, it's just a tragedy. It's really interesting, too, one more thing, if I may add. It says that Saul was like a, a full, you know, head and shoulders taller than everybody else, so he must have been a magnificent specimen. It seems as though today, within, the, within Christendom, many Christians, sadly, are very impressed with the things of the flesh. Outward beauty, eloquence of speech, personality, larger than life character kind of thing. Uh, guys, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not godly leadership. That was kind of the, the guy that Saul was, impressive. Jonathan, compared to Saul, probably didn't get a lot of second looks, but he really served the Lord. So spiritual leadership, carnal leadership, let's all grow to be able to uh, be able to tell the difference. I'm going to start uh, finding some of these questions that are being sent in. And Nathan, if you're there, if you could send those into my email, that would be wonderful. Uh, this is a email from Anu 
Anahui, forgive me, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Uh, I have a question that I hope you can help me come into a better understanding of the Word of God. In Revelation 20:14, it reads, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Does Hades in this scripture mean the grave? Death uh, in eternity after the millennial kingdom, there will be no more death. And so the idea between Revela regarding Revelation 20:14, death comes to an end. Uh, at, after the great white throne judgment, there is no more death. There is no more Hades. If there's no more death, there's no there's no need for any more grave. So it's the end. It's the end of things ending. <laughs> it's an eternal now. And so uh, that's that's what I take on that. I hope that answers your question. If not, uh, please do write in again. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, the. I'm not seeing any more questions, but I, I'm seeing them kind of pop up as I'm speaking. So I'm going to go to the YouTube page and see what your questions are. Once again, we're flying the plane while we build it. Thanks for being patient and flexible. I'm sure you've heard, blessed are the flexible, they will not be broken. So uh, let me see here. By the way, while I'm doing this, just to let you guys know, um, I am actually on Pastor David's staff. Uh, I am the director of uh, Spanish ministries. So if you go to the Enduring Word uh, commentary page, um, oh, Nathan just told me there's more questions coming in. That's fantastic. While I'm waiting for those, if you go to the Enduring Word commentary page, uh, you'll see my picture. I'm there. And uh, I'm the director of Spanish ministries. Um, I receive all the Spanish correspondence. We are currently, just to let you guys know, while I'm waiting for these questions, we are currently um, doing audio editing. And I have had, we have had, a number of native Spanish speakers read all of David's Pastor David's New Testament commentary and record it. So it's up on Spotify now. If you go to the Enduring Word Espanol site, you'll see that many of the books now, besides being able to read them, you can also uh, listen to them. So that's very valuable. I do a lot of ministry in Latin American countries, and uh, sadly, a lot of the people are illiterate and they, they can't read. And so I kind of noticed that a few years ago, and so this project was birthed. Um, Okay, here, here we go to the, with the questions. Thanks so much, guys, for being patient. And Pastor David sends all his regards, and, and he, you guys know he loves to be here for this. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Question number one from Philip Thompson. My question is this. Is the Moses model of church leadership simply a pragmatic model, or is it required by Scripture? Church government is a moving target. Um, we have churches that are congregationally led, and I know Pastor David uh, would agree, and I would agree with him, that we don't believe that there is a, uh, a model for congregationally led um, churches. Congregationally led churches means that if you're a member, if you got saved a week ago and, and your name is on roll call, now you can vote on, on the direction of the church. And it's just not wise. And there's no really no model for it. Uh, the Moses model was, of course, uh, from Moses in the Old Testament. and um, But we see with Moses that there was a problem. And his father-in-law, Jethro, 
the Midianite, told him, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. You need some help. And so choose from among yourselves men that are full of the spirit and wisdom, have good integrity, and uh, they will be leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And so Moses was, um, and, and I like this for me personally, this is how I've pastored. I've been pastoring since 1989. I've always been comfortable with this. Uh, I love the idea of first among equals. And some people may like that phrase. Some people may not like that phrase. I'm not even sure about Pastor David's take on that phrase. But Moses, to me, he was definitely the leader, and yet he had people that helped him, and they were gifted, godly men. Uh, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 15, when there's a, a council meeting with the Gentiles that are being saved, there was came. James was there as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And there was quite a council meeting. And it seems as though um, that was kind of a plurality of elders. So Moses model, I think some men to try to answer your question and get back to it. The Moses model, some guys just love to be in charge and and maybe even be a bit uh, like a monarch. Uh, That might be a personality fault with them. And so they like the Moses model. It's pragmatic, but I think it can also be dangerous and less fruitful because if a Moses model, if a guy has a heavy hand and he can intimidate everybody, kind of like Saul, like we were just talking about, then it's damaging to the church. Um, I've, I definitely feel like I'm the lead uh, elder, lead pastor of the church, but I love the input that uh, people around me give me, and they know they can come and talk to me. But they also know that basically kind of the buck stops with me, you know, between me and the Lord, and he's given me oversight of our church. And so I need to, uh, you know, when push comes to shove and a decision needs to be made, uh, I make it. And so, but um, I would say 90, 95% of the time, it's kind of a group think. So Moses' model, is it simply pragmatic model? I suppose for some people, they would call it pragmatic. It's absolutely not required by scripture. And so a uh, long question to a long, long answer to a good short question. Going on, question number two, Horatio says this, why do we see a sudden appearance of the demonized, demons or demon-possessed people when Jesus begins his ministry, yet we do not see or read of these in the Old Testament? Great, great question. I would say this, you know, uh, I want you to think about um, before Genesis 1-1, my understanding of, of things angelic were that the angels of God existed before Adam and Eve were ever created. Satan and all the demons have a perfectly clear understanding of who Jesus is. From what we understand, a lot of those angels rebelled and we now call them demons. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, when Jesus showed up, you'll remember some of the demon-possessed people said, have you come to to throw us into the pit before our time? That's a loose paraphrase. They understand exactly what their end is, and they understood exactly who Jesus was. We don't see that kind of presence of God in the Old Testament as we do when Jesus was in his incarnation, in his humiliation, if you will, living as man upon the earth. Um, There wasn't that kind of uh, poor phraseology that I'm going to use here. Please forgive me. God didn't show up in the Old Testament as frequently and as clearly as Jesus, God the Son, showing up in the Gospels. And so the confrontation level, I would imagine, 
was greatly enhanced because the demons knew exactly who he was. They know exactly what their end is. And they were wondering, has the time come now? Have you come to do that thing? And so I would say, why do we see a sudden appearance of the demon eyes when Jesus begins his ministry? I would say that. And I'm kind of guessing, but I think it's a fairly educated guess. God in the flesh showed up and they know their end. And so they're wondering if the confrontation has begun. So hope that's helpful. Question number three from Philip. My second question is this. How should our former cessationist, myself, now a cessationist is somebody who doesn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly uh, the supernatural gifts such as uh, speaking in tongues, uh, interpretation of tongues, um, words of knowledge, prophecy, that kind of thing. So how, is, uh, how should a former cessationist, myself, navigate trying to determine my spiritual gifts and what is the proper way to be baptized in the Spirit? Fantastic question. Um, Believe it or not, uh, four or five years ago, we were going through the gifts of the Holy Spirit at our church, and I encouraged some people to take some online tests. Now, some pastors might recoil that I would ever suggest that, but my, my suggestion was to our church, and I did this myself, uh, there's, there's spiritual gifts assessments that you can take online, and basically, it's kind of like going to the doctor. He'll say, does it hurt here? Does it hurt there? How does it feel when you do this? That kind of thing. They're just assessing your Christian life. And, and I encouraged our church, go to four or five or six different sites. And I listed them and handed them out in our notes. And, and, and just take these, these uh, tests. And they're just an analysis of kind of how you live your life. And, and then take them and maybe share them with a friend and say, does this sound like me? And uh, a lot of times people may say, yeah, that really does sound like you. You're a leader and you have a gift of mercy. Boy, when somebody's sick at the hospital, you're the first one there. And, and when you open the Bible and teach, boy, you really have a gift of teaching, so on and so forth. Um, so I found that to even be useful for myself. You know, sometimes we have in our minds a little bit of, of what we think we are. Or we kind of have a, a view of ourselves and, and sometimes it might be a little bit of a wish list more than reality. Um, and so when I took those tests myself, um, I think there was a bit of accuracy there um, among those tests that I took. Now, I can't off the top of my head remember what websites they are. You can just do some searching. Another perhaps more organic way to do it is, you know, what do you like to do? Do you like... You know, when, when there's a need, do you find yourself stepping forward? And do people rally around you? That's a good indication that you have a gift of leadership or the gift of what is called administration or governing. Um, like I mentioned before, you hear somebody's sick, uh, you're the first person to make food and, and take it to them. Do you love to share the gospel with people seemingly more than others? You probably have the gift of evangelism. Um, when somebody does speak in a tongue, or do you speak in a tongue? But if somebody does that in, in a what we might call an afterglow meeting, do you do you frequently have a hunch that you know what they said? Well, then you you probably do have the gift of interpretation of tongues. So I'm kind of attacking this in a two-pronged attack, if you will. The spiritual gifts tests are interesting, and I think there can be, at least in my life and my experience with our church, there was some validity to them. But secondly, what's in your heart? What do you like to do? Do you always show up to help people? You have the gift of, of service, you know. 
And so uh, there are the spectacular gifts. There are the, the what we would call non-spectacular gifts. But I would say this, you know, it, um, the Bible says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's working in you to cause you to both do and will according to his good pleasure. God works in the heart, in the mind, in the life of a Christian to cause you to both want to do something and then to give you the faith to do it. And then we have to work it out. And I would say, Philip, you're working it out because you're trying to figure out, hey, where do I land in this thing? What are my spiritual gifts? And so you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Philip, I would ask you and I would ask anybody, what is it that you like to do? Now, sometimes we might imagine ourselves as, as having a particular gift, and we really don't. Uh, I guess thirdly, not just a two-prong attack, I would add this also. Is there fruit? Is there evidence? You might think you're a Bible teacher and, and just, you know, you've shared a few times at a men's breakfast or something like that. And just ask your friends, hey, buddy, tell me the truth. Does it feel like I have a gift of teaching? And, and sometimes a, an honest friend, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You might say, you know, you have lots of gifts, but teaching is not one of them. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you can ask some people too for the evidence and for, for the fruit. And so hope that helps. I'm going to move on to some other questions. Let me uh, delete this one. Uh, questions part two. Okay, question number four. Laura asks this. If a self-proclaimed Christian is confronted with sin towards someone and doesn't apologize to the one they hurt, are they really a Christian? Sure, I think they are. Um, we're not, you know... And I know this isn't your, your question or your, your, uh, your trajectory, but we're not robots, you know? We have to work through things. And so, you know, maybe, I have, maybe somebody offended me and I have a heart, hard heart towards them and I know I should forgive them and I'm praying and I want to forgive them and I'm, I'm like, Lord, you've really got to move in my heart and I don't know how it's, I, I, if I confront them or if I forgive them or if I bring it up, they still might be mad at me and they might say something and I might blow up and we can be so worried about these confrontations and they, we can be a bit paralyzed by these kinds of things. But if I feel, but if I haven't forgiven somebody yet, when I'm around them, my friends are going to notice my poor disposition towards them. They're going to notice that. And an honest brother, an honest sister may pull me aside and say, you know, it seems as though you have something against Joe or Susie over there. Is that the case? Yeah, I do. I'm, I really need to forgive him. And, and a faithful friend will say, yeah, you really do need to forgive him. So forgiveness might be taking us some time. But it doesn't mean we're not a Christian. It just simply means, as I, as I mentioned previously, I think it was to Philip, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so faithful friends will, will notice that. They'll tell us. Satan will say, Satan will attack us on that and accuse us and say something like this. Oh, you call yourself a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. If you were a Christian, you would have forgiven them right away. And uh, perhaps if we were a more mature Christian, we would have forgiven them right away. But perhaps they hurt us in a particularly deep way and we're working through it. So I would not say somebody is not a Christian because they didn't forgive immediately, especially if they desire to forgive. Now, if they have no desire to forgive and they just kind of say, I hate that person and uh, I'm, I'm going to be against them all the days of my life and I pray their life falls apart, then you might begin to question, hmm, you know, I don't see any of the heart of Jesus in that 
response. And so uh, that might be questionable. But guys, Christians, we don't always act like Christians, do we? And when we discover that our hearts are broken and we repent and we get back to living life according to the Holy Spirit. So good question, very practical question. I would say, boy, uh, walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and and get to forgiveness as soon as possible. Um, the Bible tells us we don't want to give the, the devil a foothold. I've seen rock climbers in, in uh, Yosemite, and I've seen rock climbers up close, and when they're scaling a wall, they have on very flexible rubber shoes that have good grip to them. All they need is about this much space to put their toes and they can advance up the cliff. Unforgiveness is a place where if we don't forgive by choice, we are giving the enemy a toehold and he can advance into our lives. I'm not saying we lose our salvation. I'm just saying uh, we're, we're letting the wicked one get into our heads and in our hearts. So forgiveness is very, very important. That's why Jesus came, wasn't it? To forgive us. So good question. Anna Hui asks again, uh, not not again, but she's asking again. I'm, I'm thinking it's a she. Oh, oh, we already answered this question. It was about death and Hades cast into the lake of fire. So we got that one already. Okay, Alfredo says this, concerning Revelation 21, why will God destroy heaven and create a new one if it's considered to be a place without sin? Hmm. I don't know. That's a great, great question. I know that Jesus frequently says, behold, I make all things new. I would say even the heavens that are so magnificent, um, you know, and if you live in a place where you can see the stars and that's just kind of the closer atmosphere and then with all the telescopes that we have now and, and all of that, uh, we are just reaching further and further out into the universe to see amazing things and, and the the breadth of God's creation, and he holds it all in the palm of his hand. And yet, um, creation is groaning, Romans chapter 8. Creation is corrupt. As beautiful as creation is, it's corrupt. And so I would, I would maybe connect those dots together and say, God will destroy the heaven and make a new one because all of creation uh, is corrupt as it is right now. And so... Uh, that's probably my best guess right now. So great, great question. Thank you so much. Let me see if there's some more questions coming in. Yep, here's some more questions. Fantastic. You guys are asking good questions. Donna says this, why do the five virgins that do not make it inside the wedding feast, what do the, who do the five virgins that do not make it inside the wedding feast represent? That's Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Some have said that those who were not fruitful and will not rule and reign in the millennial reign, is this correct? So here's the, here's the passage. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for pasting it in. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish, five were wise. I'm skimming down here. It certainly speaks of readiness at the very least. And I know these passages are kind of hotly debated. Um, some, some would say, excuse me, I'm gonna type it in. Some would say that this is speaking about the rapture of the church, that, that, that Christians that are not ready 
uh, will not be raptured. Others seem to say that uh, this is speaking about um, Christians that aren't really Christians. Matthew 25 is a chapter about readiness. Jesus said in verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. In verses 31 to 46, he talks about those who say, uh, you know, Lord, when did we do this? And he said, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Others who say, Lord, uh, we, we did these things. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So uh, I don't know that I'm totally ready to give that answer on that. And I apologize. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not going to try to fake it with you. Um, if anything, at the, at the very least, let me say this, it's readiness. As Christians, we need to be ready and living for the imminent return of Christ any time. Some would even take this Matthew chapter 25 and put it into the time of the great tribulation period. My take on it is, is for the Christian today to live in readiness all the time for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So that's probably not a great answer. It's the one that I have right now. And so thank you. Question number eight. Anahui, I wish I knew for sure what your answer, what, how to pronounce your name. Are there any female pastors or disciples in the Bible? Forgive my asking, as I have yet to read the entire book. Thank you. Absolutely female disciples. I mean, I think when Jesus was upon the earth in his incarnation, he had a number of women that, that served him and ministered to his needs. As far as female pastors, we don't see that being taught uh, in the New Testament. There are some instances in the Old Testament where some women rose up to places of prominence and leadership, in my understanding, because of the lack of leadership of men. But those are examples, and they are not the norm. Paul is really clear uh, in 1 Timothy where he says, and I do not permit a woman to, to teach or have authority over a man. Now, let me say this. My wife is an amazing Bible teacher, and I enjoy listening to her Bible studies. And I don't think that a, a man is in trouble if he, you know, watches a YouTube video of a, of a woman that, that taught uh, a Bible study or something like that. I think the point of it is teaching with commands attached to them, with exhortations attached to them, perhaps with rebukes attached to them, with leadership and oversight and authority over a man. I think that's what's at issue. So short answer, I don't believe the New Testament teaches that women should be pastors. I am in the camp where I think it's okay that they are deaconesses, and there is uh, references to that in the New Testament. Um, some of the Greek words uh, can ap apply to as servants and or deaconess, and so I I'm fine with that. I think women are amazing in the church. Uh, the ladies in our church help us tremendously. Um, getting back to the idea of the Moses model, boy, I kind of run everything past my wife. She's got an insightful uh, wisdom and and a, and a and a feminine wisdom, if I may say that. I have a masculine wisdom. You know, we we're, we're, we we complement each other on that. I'm still in in charge of of leading the church, um, but some of the ladies in our church are just amazing, and and they contribute so much. But as far as um, female pastors, I don't see that, and I know that's a hot topic in Christendom today. And I just have to go with my understanding of the Bible. And um, some would say 
it's a it's a cultural thing and or Paul was, you know, against women or it was just for Ephesus because Timothy was ministering there in Ephesus. But in the passage there, as Paul writes to Timothy, he, he alludes back uh, to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. So it's far beyond a cultural application. It's a it's just a human it's a human application, an application to all of humanity. So I hope that helps. Anthony asked this, is the online spiritual test on Calvary Chapel University a good place to start? I haven't seen it, but I would certainly hope so. Um, I would I would trust uh, their judgment on such things. And so uh, I, I would certainly hope so, that they would um, have a good uh, spiritual gifts test. Yeah, so I don't see any other uh questions that have come in. Nathan, if you're still there, and I'm presuming that you are, uh, are there any questions that are coming in? I'm going to go on YouTube here on my site. Okay. Oh, okay. Is it possible for people with personality disorders like, like borderline? Oh, here we go. Here we go. More questions. We're getting it done. Pam asked this, I have been hearing Christianity say lately that the New Testament doesn't speak of tithing. Can you explain this? I'd love to. The nation of Israel, when God formed them, he wanted them to be totally different from the pagan nations that they were going to dispossess from the land of Canaan. And so he gave them a multiplicity of laws to obey. And one of the things that God wanted to install uh, instill within their hearts was that the first fruits always go to him. If I am starting a crop uh, and I need to feed a family of six and, uh, you know, the corn starts to come in, in my mind as the provider and as the farmer, I can think, you know, I better save every single ear of corn because what if suddenly there's a hailstorm and the rest of the crop is destroyed or what if locusts come in or something like that and I've got to feed my family. God would say, you give me the first part. Put me first. It's a good thing that you want to feed your family, but put me first and believe that I will provide everything that you need. That's the idea of first fruits. Financially speaking, the people were to tithe. They were to give a 10% off the top of, of their finances to give to the work of the Lord. The word tithing doesn't come into the New Testament, but the principle of giving certainly is there. Uh, we read about it uh, in the writings of the Apostle Paul that he told the church at Corinth when they gathered together on the first day of the week, presumably Sunday, to set something aside and he would come and collect it and they were doing relief work to the saints that were there in Jerusalem. And so uh, the idea of first fruits uh, and, and giving unto the Lord, the law of it isn't in the New Testament, but the principle of it is. Paul taught the Corinthians that we should be cheerful givers, willing givers, and deliberate givers. And so uh, it's a good practice, and, and really it's a healthy thing to do. Jesus told his followers, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So for the Christian who's worried, am I going to be able to make it this year? And, um, you know, am I going to be able to pay the rent? I've got to save every penny and pay the rent, and if I have anything left over, then I'll give it to the Lord. I would say that you're you're trying to manage your own life and not trusting the Lord. And I and and I'm not 
questioning intentions. Uh, you know, being, not being able to pay the rent can be a fearful thing. However, this is the case that um, if you believe that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his, his righteousness, that he will take care of you, then put him first. Give him the first fruits of your paycheck. Do it deliberately. Do it in faith. Do it joyfully. Not uh, being manipulated or anything like that. Not with uh, sadness or feeling constrained to do it. I would say that any Christian that feels constrained or like they have to do it and that's a, a negative thing in their heart, that they, they shouldn't give until they're able to give joyfully and freely and with gratitude. And so... Once again, the idea of the of the tithing, the law of it was it was a law for the Hebrews. It's not a law for the New Testament Christian, but the principle is absolutely still there. And so, hope that answers your question. Jason says this wonderful stream, Pastor Bill. Thank you for your time. You're welcome, Jason. How are we supposed to interpret modern day prophet healing? I haven't heard that phrase. I haven't heard those two words put together. Prophet healing. Listen. Uh, maybe we can look at it this way. You know, when Jesus healed somebody, there weren't any questions if a healing took place. <laughs> it was obvious, you know. Blind Bartimaeus, now he could see. The man that was had his bed in, in the, and I think it's John chapter 5, I might be wrong on the chapter, but near the pool of Bethesda. Uh, he couldn't walk one day, the next day he could. You know, when Jesus healed people and raised them from the dead, uh, People didn't have to wonder if it was a real healing or not. <laughs> so I think Jesus is still in the business, you know, of healing people and he'll use us to pray for people to lay hands on them or he might heal them without us. But, you know, if I'm not, and once again, I'm not sure about the, the phrase uh, prophet healing. But I, I still, I'm not a cessationist. You know, there are people in the body of Christ that don't believe that the, the spectacular gifts, the supernatural gifts are for today. I think God still wants to bless his church and he still wants to bless people. If somebody calls himself a prophet and they claim to be able to heal somebody, I don't have to wonder if they can or not. I just have to look. <laughs> there was the... Uh, episode of the man who had a gradual healing as, as Jesus was healing a blind man. It seems that his sight came back in increments, but it, it happened all rather quickly. So, uh, you know, if there's a prophet that says, well, the healing is good, you just have to claim it now. I, 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 I struggle with that. Once again, I, I think of Jesus, when Jesus was healing in his incarnation, there, weren't any, there wasn't anybody wondering if, if, a, if a miracle took place. It was just easy to see. I think we should expect that too. So hope that, hope that answers your question. Any more questions coming in here? Okay, well, it seems like we are coming up on the end of things. We are at 51 minutes, and so I see there's a lot of people online here. There's 67 people watching. So if you do have a question, you've got eight minutes and 35 seconds to send it in. Um, want to mention again uh, the Spanish language commentary. It's just fantastic. If you have friends that speak Spanish, um, 
and you want to share with them, um, es.enduringword.com, espanol, enduringword.com. You can point them in that direction or you can uh, send them to Spotify and look up Enduring Word Espanol. Also, there's uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter feeds and platforms where Spanish uh, devotionals and little you know, graphics and, and messages are given every single day. So uh, I, that, like I, I promote that a little bit because I'm in charge of it and, and it's a blessing to do it. And uh, we're getting so many uh, good reports from people around the world who are receiving those messages and uh, so many, even some from pastors that, um, you know, you need to understand something. A lot of, a lot of, uh, oh, Philip asked, I'm going to jump on Philip's question here. How does somebody receive um, the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I think I looked, I overlooked that question from you before, Philip, and I apologize for that. Let me let me turn in my Bible to uh, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter one. And uh, we're going to look at it together. And if you want to open your Bible there, uh, we'll, we'll take a look. Uh, Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and uh, he met with them. And it says this. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized you with water. So that was unto repentance but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, he's talking to the disciples that had seen his resurrection. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, saying, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria." I want you to flash back to when Jesus went to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. John said about Jesus, he will baptize you with, with the Spirit and with fire. Jesus then is the one who baptizes the believer with the Holy Spirit. Now, I learned this uh, analogy a while back, and it's been very useful to me. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo, and it means to fully immerse in something. Now, I want you to, 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 uh, to, to imagine this. Let's say I have a cup here. I'm going to hold it so that you can't see what's in the cup. If I hold it this way, you can see. If I hold it this way, you can't see what's in the cup. And I have a white cloth, and I put the white cloth into this, swirl it around, and bring it out, and it comes out blue. What do I have in the cup? I have blue water in the cup. Because the handkerchief, if you will, the white handkerchief has taken on the nature of that which it was submerged into. And I think that's a wonderful idea of the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. When a person is baptized unto faith, they are submerged into the water, but they also, if you will, are submerged into Christ. And the submersion into Christ doesn't happen necessarily, and probably not, at the actual baptism. The baptism is symbolic of what has already happened in their hearts. But they are now having an outward show of that which has happened in their hearts. Now, the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
I do believe it can be a secondary event that happens in the life of a Christian. It doesn't always, but I think sometimes. We see in Acts chapter 2, and let me turn there. My Bible says the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind, and it was filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now in John 21, Jesus had already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In my understanding, John 21 is when they were saved. They were born again. Here in Acts chapter 2, they are, if you will, submerged. They are overwhelmed. They are topped off. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, it doesn't matter what you call it. Do you have it? And it just simply means by to be filled. Sometimes when I teach on unforgiveness or when I teach on people that lose their anger or something like that, I describe our lives like this. We are all a full cup. You know, this much might be, oh, I don't know, let's say theology, and this much might be hobbies, and this much might be uh, work, and this top part right here is an angry, unsettled spirit. And, and, you know, we all look good until somebody bumps into us, you know, and then that anger spills out or that unforgiveness spills out or whatever's inside of you, you know, if you kind of get bumped, it's going to spill out. If you get bumped, Christian, does the Holy Spirit spill out? I think it's not, not the best analogy, but it's kind of a picture that works for me. Paul says uh, to, the, to, the church, uh, to the church in Ephesus in, in Ephesians chapter 5, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And another translation of that is, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. You keep being filled with the Holy Spirit, which of course means that you were, there was some initial filling at some point. Now, as I said, I believe that that can take place at conversion. We see in the book of Acts, it can take place subsequently. We see in the book of Acts, there were some people that were believers, but they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so for the brother, I think it was Philip that was saying this. If if I got the name wrong, forgive me. Um, It's not so much the manner of it, but I think it's just a simple prayer. Lord, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? You may want to spend time with your pastor or with some people you know, worshiping the Lord together. And this is just, I don't think there's a formula is is what I'm trying to say. I think if you, if a Christian asks Jesus to fill him with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist said, he's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer. And it just simply means that you're filled. Now, my filling may include the gift of tongues and yours doesn't. My filling might include the gift of mercy, but yours includes the gift of administration. My filling might be a little bit different than you as as far as the gifts are manifested. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control, all those things will all fill us so that when I get bumped, the Holy Spirit spills out. So, Ask your pastor to pray for you. And you may attend a church where they don't believe in what is called the second blessing. And, and you know, that's okay. Um, I believe in it. A number of us do. And uh, 
I would say pray for it. I'm reading another question here. Some a, a sister named Lynn said, "I'm struggling to get into my Bible this week. Does this mean I'm not saved?" Absolutely not. An unbeliever never wants to read the Bible. <laughs> so, Lynn, the very fact that you want to read the Bible would seem to indicate, in many instances, that you do have a hunger for the Word of God. So, you know, um, I struggle to read the Bible. I'm a pastor. I teach it every week. I've been teaching the Bible since before 1989 when I was ordained. And there are times when I just don't want to pick it up, and I just have to be disciplined. And I pray, God, give me the discipline to do that. And so, Lynn, uh, don't wait till you feel like it. Just do it. Don't wait for it to be emotionally ready to do it. Just do it. So I think we are, yeah, we, I think we've finished our time together. So um, I don't see any other questions from Nathan. Uh, so, okay, mission accomplished, I would say. For the 56 of you that are still here, I'm kind of I'm blessed, amazed, and, uh, you know, uh, trying to fill Pastor David's shoes kind of impossible uh, for many of us, but um, but the Lord uses us, doesn't he? And, um, and so let the Lord use you. Be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Philip wrote, he's attending a Calvary Chapel. He's been learning about this. And uh, so good, Philip. Keep reading about it. Uh, read Pastor David's commentary on it. He's got great notes. Uh, I think I did mention this earlier. I'll close with this. You know, I use his notes so often that I and I I, I hand out notes when when I teach sermons on Sunday, and uh, and I, I they frequently hear me saying uh, David Gusick says. And finally, last week I said our assistant pastor says, and they all got a big kick out of it. So Philip, read David's notes on that, and you'll really gain a lot. So, hey David, thank you, appreciate it. So we're gonna sign off on a high spot. Pastor David greeted us all. So God bless you guys. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.